So we are back in the Christmas story, and uh, I know it feels wrong, doesn't it? It feels like we've done mangers and donkeys and shepherds and stables for the year. You can kind of put that back on the shelf and we come back to it next year. But here we are. We are back in Luke's gospel. It's January, and Jesus has not even been born yet. Instead, we are back with Zechariah and Elizabeth, and we're looking at another birth, the birth of John the Baptist. And what's interesting is in the enormity of all of these events, the angels, the star, the miraculous birth, the shepherds, the wise men, the coming of the saviour of the world, what is so striking is that God seems to go out of his way to tell us something else, that he loves us individually. Listen uh, to verse 57. When it was time for Elizabeth to have her baby, she gave birth to a son. Her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown her great mercy, and they shared her joy. Literally, it, it seems to say that God magnified his mercy to her. He gave Elizabeth a son. You see, if you think about it, God could have created John, her son, out of nothing. He could have brought John into the world through parents who had three or four other children, but he chose Elizabeth, someone who had no children, who was beyond childbearing age. He chose her to be the mother of John. Why? Because he loves her individually. He wanted her to experience his mercy. The birth of John, interestingly, wasn't only about God's plan to save the world. It was also his mercy to one specific person, Elizabeth. And that theme of mercy runs through these verses. It's there, verse 58. It's in verse 72. And we see it again in verse 78. God is merciful. But it's not some generic, vague mercy. He is merciful to individuals. To Elizabeth to me and to you, his mercy is personal. It is to you. Amidst the enormity of all the events surrounding the first coming of Jesus, all the events that go on in this world, God's eyes are still on individuals. His mercy is for you. We're going to think about that. Uh, rooted crowd are in with us because it's communion. Welcome. Lovely to have you here. Uh, one wee question for you to kind of think through and um, that you can chat through later. How has God been merciful to you? How has God been merciful to you? Use some of the things that we look at now to try and answer that question later. So first of all, God's mercy is gracious. Now, we first met Zechariah and Elizabeth at the beginning of chapter 1. Zechariah was serving in the temple. He was a priest. And while he was serving, he saw the angel Gabriel. And Gabriel promised Zechariah, you and Elizabeth will have a son. And you are to call him John. But you remember, Zechariah wasn't entirely convinced. He basically said, are you sure, Gabriel? <laughs> We're old. Elizabeth can't have children. You sure? And because of his lack of faith, Zechariah is then condemned to silence until the child is born. Kind of a punishment for Zechariah. It might have been a mercy for Elizabeth. 
nine months without Zechariah yabbiting on, but who knows. Those nine months are now past, and Elizabeth gives birth. Now, I normally like to give new parents a week or two before heading over, but Elizabeth's neighbors and relatives, they all pile in, and they are there for the naming, verse 59. On the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child, and they were going to name him after his father, Zechariah. And of course, naming a child is a big thing. We, we loved coming up with names for our children. So much, so much choice, so much fun to be had. India's initials spell I-Rock. Eliza's initials spell Epic. All sorts of fun. But in first century Israel, the choices were fairly limited. Usually, the first son would take the father's name. That was it. The child born to Elizabeth should have been called Zechariah. But, verse 60, his mother spoke up and said, No, he is to be called John. And those in the room, I mean, it's hard enough trying to come up with a name where there's just two of you, but you know, she's got a room full of relatives, makes it even harder. Those in the room are less excited by that name, and so they look to Zechariah for confirmation, verse 61. And actually, it seems as though Zechariah isn't only mute, he can't hear either. So they make signs to him. You can imagine this kind of game of charades, first word, first syllable. This, this is why we do charades at Christmas. It all dates back to this moment here. And they sign, Zechariah, what name will you give to this child? And here is Zechariah's moment. Or rather, his second moment. Because back in the temple, when he heard the angel Gabriel's promise, he doubted, he disbelieved. That was nine months ago. So what's he going to say? Will he accept that this child is the miraculous gift from God? Will he call this child John, as the angel told him? He asked for a writing tablet, and to everyone's astonishment, he wrote, his name is John. Zechariah doubted when he first heard the angel, but now he is adamant. He faithfully obeys Gabriel and he calls his son John. And immediately, verse 64, his mouth was opened and his tongue set free and he began to speak, praising God. Zechariah can speak again. The last words he said were words of doubt. Nine months later, the first words out of his mouth are words of praise. I think there's two things that we might want to take from this. First, sometimes it is better to remain silent. The Lord silenced Zechariah for nine months. Why? Partly because of his disbelief, but but why silence? Why is that the appropriate response? Well, imagine if God hadn't silenced Zechariah. Imagine Zechariah heard Gabriel promise, you will have a son, and he doubted it. And he left the temple, he went to the crowds and to Elizabeth and said, you'll never guess what, I saw the angel Gabriel, he said, you are going to have a son. But then doubting Zechariah would have also said, can't possibly be true, can it? I must have misheard, didn't I? If Zechariah hadn't been silenced, he would have sowed doubt amongst God's people. He would have snatched away their joy and their confidence in the Lord. His doubt and disbelief would have spread. 
And sometimes we do the same. Sometimes our words can sow doubt in God and disappointment in God. We focus on the negatives. We talk about the things that God hasn't done, the prayers that he hasn't answered. And in so doing, we cause others to doubt God and be disappointed in him. And so maybe sometimes it is better to remain silent. Of course, it's right that we share our grievances and our concerns. But if we are only ever negative and doubting, then maybe sometimes it is better to be silent. But there's something else here. And that is the graciousness of God. Because he gives Zechariah another chance, doesn't he? Back in the temple, Zechariah had this big moment when Gabriel appeared to him, promised him a child. That was his big moment, a chance to respond in faith, to show the Lord that he believed him. But he blew it. He doubted. And we've all been there. The Lord gives us these moments to obey him, to express our confidence in him, to do the right thing. And we blow it. I have this moment where it's so obvious. Are you going to choose obedience or are you going to choose sin? We choose sin. We get an opportunity to pray with our wife or to disciple our children. Something that we know we should do but we haven't been doing. It's there, laid out on a plate for us. We don't take it. We get a chance to speak to someone about Jesus and we bottle it. We've all done what Zechariah did. But God is gracious. Like Zechariah, he gives us another chance, another opportunity to do the right thing, to speak for him, to express our obedience towards him. So if you're very aware of the times that you've bottled it or blown it, just look for the next opportunity. This is his mercy to you. Another chance. The Lord is merciful. He gives us another chance. He is gracious. It's what John's name means. God is gracious. Secondly, his mercy has saved us. So Zechariah is now able to speak for the first time in nine months. And in 68 to 79, we see what he said. And look at the first words that come out of his mouth. Verse 68. Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel. Zechariah's mouth is opened. And the first thing he does is to burst into praise for God. And you think, well, yes, of course he's praising God. He's just been gifted a child, a son he thought he'd never have. Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel. He's given me a son. Makes sense. You know, when something goes well in our life, when our circumstances improve, then bursting into spontaneous joy and praise in God makes sense. A promotion. Lord, you know how much I've wanted this. Thank you. Praise be to you. Or better health. Lord, you know how I've been struggling. You know how it's been so difficult. Thank you. Praise be to you for this better health. Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel. He's given me a son. But actually, that is not what Zechariah praises God for. In this song of praise, he doesn't even mention his son until five or six lines in. 
Listen, verse 69. Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. As he said through his holy prophets of long ago, salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. To show mercy to our ancestors and to remember his holy covenant. The oath he swore to our father Abraham to rescue us from the hand of our enemies and to enable us to serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. Do you see the thing that fuels Zechariah's joy and praise in the Lord? It isn't so much his personal fortune. Lord, you've given me a son. No, Zechariah looks beyond himself and he sees something much bigger, even more wonderful. Lord, I praise you because you're saving the world. Verse 69, the Lord has raised up a horn of salvation in the house of David. Verse 71, the Lord is saving us from our enemies. Verse 74, the Lord is rescuing us. Praise the Lord because he is saving the world. When I sit down and give thanks to God, when I feel joy welling up inside me and spontaneously praise God, it's nearly always because of some change in my personal circumstance. And that is not wrong. Of course, we want to praise the Lord. They are gifts from him that we rejoice in. But if only my vision of God's work was not so narrow, It wasn't so limited to me and my life. If only I was more like Zechariah, able to see and appreciate and marvel at all that the Lord is doing, the greater and wider work of bringing salvation to the world. If that was the fuel of my joy and delight in the Lord, then maybe my heart would sing his praises more. Zechariah looks beyond himself and his own life and sees the wonderful wider work that God is doing. And he says lots about that wider work. Two quick things. He rejoices in what God saves us from. Verse 71, salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. Salvation means salvation from our enemies. And enemies is is broad here. It is is all-encompassing. Our enemies are are earthly and they are political. Our, Our enemies, as followers of Christ, are real people who really oppose Jesus and Christians and the teachings of Christ, who actually imprison and kill and persecute Christians. Those enemies we will be saved from, they will be stopped, either through conversion to Christ now or when they stand before him in judgment then. But our enemies aren't just earthly, they are spiritual as well. The devil and his demons who work in the world and they work in our hearts. See, the devil wants nothing more than to ruin our friendships and our marriages and the witness of this church. It is the devil who stirs up jealousy and bitterness and doubt and disbelief and idolatry in our hearts. He is our enemy. But you, brothers and sisters, have been rescued from his power. 
So you must ignore him. You must banish him. You must not let him stir up hatred and jealousy and bitterness in your heart. You have been rescued from his power. Salvation means rescue from our enemies. But it also means rescue for something. Look at verse 74. To rescue us from the hand of our enemies and to enable us to serve him, God, without fear, in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. You, you first read that, don't you? And you feels a little bit of an anticlimax. God's rescued us from our enemies only to make us his servants from one oppression to another. But if you've been a Christian for any length of time, then you know to serve God, to worship God, that is what we were made for. To orbit our lives around him, to live under his lordship, that isn't slavery, it is life. That's why Zechariah says we will serve him without fear. Living under the lordship of God, living our lives serving God is freedom, not fear. It's what we were made for. As kids, we had a couple of goldfish, and I think one was definitely called Bob. I don't know what the other one was called. They lived in a little tank in my brother's room and didn't have a very exciting life. Had some fake seaweed in there. There's one of those kind of stone tunnel things. If you've seen a goldfish bowl, then you've probably seen one of those fake stone tunnel things. And just imagine if Bob thought to himself, look, life in this tank is a bit restrictive. I've been through the tunnel. I've been over the tunnel. I've been around the tunnel. I've done the tunnel. Nothing else to do really in here. And so he thinks, I'm going to jump for it. He takes a flying leap and he jumps out and he lands on the floor. That's not freedom, is it? A fish was made to live within the constraints of water and we were made to live within the constraints of God. To worship him, to serve him, to live with him and under him. And when we do, we discover freedom instead of fear. It's what we were made for. It's what we were saved for. This is God's mercy to you. He's saved you from your enemies and he's saved you for himself. So Zechariah rejoices in God's great mercy, a mercy that saves us. And finally, we see that God's mercy is always with us. See, at last in this song, Zechariah turns his attention to his son, John, but even then, he only gives his son a couple of lines. And even then, he seems to be having someone else in his mind. Listen to verse 76. And you, my child, will be called a prophet of the Most High, for you will go on before the Lord to prepare the way for him, to give his people the knowledge of salvation. The privilege of John's life is to point to someone else. He is to prepare people for the coming of Jesus. Zechariah is singing over his newborn son and he is saying, son, your life is not going to be about you. It's going to be about another. Your life is going to be about the coming of the Lord Jesus, the Savior himself. As a little aside, there's a, there's a good parenting tip here, isn't there? So tempting to be caught up with our own children 
to think that they are the most important thing, to parent them in such a way that they think they are the most important thing, the center of the universe. But of course, if that is what we teach our children, then it won't be good for them and it won't be good for the rest of the human race um, either. We need to help our children understand that they are not the center of the universe. John's life is not about him, it is about another, it is about the Lord Jesus. And look how the Lord Jesus is described in verse 78. Because of the tender mercy of our God, by which the rising sun will come to us from heaven to shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the path of peace. The Lord Jesus is the rising sun. The coming of Jesus is like the dawn of a new day. It is as if all of humanity has been living in the night, living in the darkness, and then Jesus comes and the night ends. And when we set off for Wales, particularly in the winter, to go and see Laura's parents, we set off very early. My alarm clock kind of goes off around half past five in the morning and it's dark, still night. And my job, normally Laura will go and, and kind of have a shower or something, and my job, and I secretly love this job, um, it is to wake the children. It's a bit of payback for all the times they woke me in the night. And uh, I'll pop into their rooms, it's still dark. I'll say their name because I want them to be awake. And then I turn the light on and boom. And these little mole kind of creatures and they're rubbing their eyes. And, and they get out. It's day. The night has ended. The light has gone on. The night has ended. It is day. It is time to get up. When Jesus was born in Bethlehem, the sun rose. The night was ending and the day was beginning. And for all those who live under Jesus, they no longer belong to the night. They live in the daytime. We live in the daytime, under the loving rule of Jesus, who leads us out of the shadow, the darkness of death, and guides us in pathways that lead to peace. But actually, when the sun rises... It's usually a gradual thing, isn't it? It isn't quite like me turning on the lights in the children's room. In the dawn time, there's that mix, isn't there, of day and night, light and, and, and darkness, murkiness. Jesus has come. The sun has started to rise. But the darkness is still around. The night lingers on, and so at the beginning of this new year, we have a choice. Will we turn back to the night? Turn back to our lives of self-rule and self-love and self-determination, or will we walk in the day under the Lord Jesus? And just as we close, to encourage us to live in the day, I want you to know this, to live under Jesus Christ, to live in the daytime, is to live under the mercy of God. Verse 78, 
because of the tender mercy of our God, the rising sun comes from heaven. Jesus Christ, the rising sun, is the tender mercy of our God. And the word tender, it means gut. It means heartfelt, gut-wrenching. I know we long for God to show us mercy in the way that he showed Elizabeth mercy. We long for him to give us something we crave, to fix some problem in our life or to take away some pain. We want that kind of mercy. Sometimes he will show us that mercy. But the greatest display of God's gut-wrenching mercy for you and for me is seen in the blazing face of Jesus Christ, the rising sun. Live in the day, live in the light of Jesus Christ, and every day you will be living under the tender mercy of God. And that means everything that comes to you, whether the fulfillment of your deepest desires or the tears of pain and heartache as we live in a broken world, it is all the tender, gut-wrenching mercy of God. It may not be the mercy you want to receive, but it is the mercy you need to receive. Live in the day. Live in the light of Jesus Christ, the rising sun, and just like Elizabeth, experience that personal mercy of God. So every day you will experience God's mercy to you. This is his mercy to you. Another chance. Salvation from your enemies for him. And to live in the light of Jesus Christ, the rising sun.